Now please open your Bibles to 1 Corinthians chapter 13. 1 Corinthians chapter 13. If you're new to Manoa Community Church, we have been going through the summer in a brief mini-series on the gifts of the Holy Spirit in a series called When God Comes to Church. Chapters 12, 13, and 14 of 1 Corinthians are all about manifestations of the Spirit, the gifts of the Holy Spirit. And by the way, if you haven't grabbed a copy of the free book in the back, Understanding Spiritual Gifts, looks like we still have about five copies or so left. They are yours. Please take them today before you leave. We really only have this week and two more weeks left, and then we're going to go into, well, Ron's going to preach on community on September 11th, and then we're launching into a new preaching series in the fall on Hebrews 11 about faith. And so I'm super excited to go through Hebrews 11 and all the characters as we study them and the faith that they exemplify that we're called to imitate. So we're, we're coming to the tail end. We're going to accelerate things here. Uh, two weeks ago, I preached on the first couple verses. You'll remember that. Love is everything. We had the kids in the service. So I'm not going to preach those first couple verses, but I'm going to preach the rest of chapter 13 this morning and, and get us to chapter 14 for next week. You're familiar with this section of your Bible already, even if you don't normally go to church. I promise you that, because this is the chapter that's read at most of the weddings. Love is patient and kind. And though I'm not going to preach the first couple verses, I am going to reread them just to give us the whole context, and then I will uh, preach the latter portion. So verses 1 through 3, go back and listen to on YouTube. We'll be preaching through verses 4 to 13. Because it's lengthier, I'd love for us just to stand for the public reading of God's Word. I'm going to read the whole chapter in its entirety while we stand So please listen along the word of the Lord. If I speak in the tongues of men and of angels, but have not love, I am a noisy gong or a clanging cymbal. If I have prophetic powers and understand all mysteries and all knowledge, if I have all faith so as to remove mountains, but have not love, I am nothing. If I give away all that I have, If I deliver up my body to be burned, but have not love, I gain nothing. Now today's section. Love is patience and kind. Love does not envy or boast. It is not arrogant or rude. It does not insist on its own way. It is not irritable or resentful. It does not rejoice at wrongdoing, but rejoices with the truth. Love bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things, endures all things. Love never ends. As for prophecies, they will pass away. As for tongues, they will cease. As for knowledge, it will pass away. For we know in part and we prophesy in part, but when the perfect comes, the partial will pass away. When I was a child, I spoke like a child. I thought like a child. I reasoned like a child. When I became a man, I gave up childish ways. For now we see in a mirror dimly, but then face to face. Now I know in part, then I shall know fully, even as I have been fully known. So now faith, hope, and love abide. These three But the greatest of these is love. Today's sermon is entitled, Gifts to Greatness. The word of the Lord. 
Thanks be to God. You can sit down for the prayer. Let's pray. Well, Father God, great love. We thank you for faith and hope, but we thank you most of all for love which will never cease and never pass away. And so God, as we contemplate your love for us and the nature of love this morning, and as we lay the theme of love next to the theme of the gifts of the Holy Spirit, which is precisely what you inspired in chapter 13 for us to do, may we, yes, love you, Spirit, and love you for the gifts that you've given to us, but most of all, use those gifts in love to love others and to love you back, the greatest gift of all. Do it, Lord. Pour your love into our hearts, even through your word as it's preached now, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. When I go to parties at friends' houses or sometimes have people over, every now and then you get a, a big group game started. And one of my favorite group games is called Catchphrase. Raise your hand if you've ever played Catchphrase. Really? <laughs> Uh, all right, well, I guess I do have to explain catchphrase to you then. All right, so catchphrase is a game where there's this device, and it gives you a word, right? And the person who has it goes every other, like the person next to you is you're not on your team, they're the opponent, and then the next person's on your team all the way around. So there's 10 people, five people on your team, five people opposed. And whatever the word is, you need to get your team to say the word, but you can't use the word to get people to say the word, right? So if the word is city, you, can't, you can say urban or whatever, but you can't say like, the city of Philadelphia, city, yeah, you know. You can't use the word to describe the word, right? That doesn't work. That's cheating, er, you know, you, have, you get buzzed if you do that. People hold you accountable. Well, Paul now here in chapter 15, or chapter 13, excuse me, is giving us 15 characteristics of love. And it's a powerful section in our Bibles. We love it at weddings because, of course, marriage is all about love. But as I've said before, and if you're new, this really isn't a text about getting married and making sure you're ready that you really love the person you're making the vows to. Though certainly love is modeled in that. But there's a breadth to love. And these 15 characteristics are picked specifically because the church in Corinth was using the gifts of the Holy Spirit in unloving ways. And so we saw two, three weeks ago where we talked about love is that essential ingredient, like the sugar in the recipe, right? That when you forget it, oops, the, the recipe tastes horrible. He says, our giving is wasted. He says that my speech sounds like a symbol. It's just, you need love. And so he continues his argument about the power of the gifts of the Holy Spirit coupled with love. And also the temporary nature of the gifts of the Holy Spirit as opposed to the eternal nature of love. And so that's where Paul is going. We're going to look at these characteristics under four different headings about when you combine the gifts that God has given you with the greatness of God's love, what happens? And here's the most important thing. What kind of person am I becoming? What kind of Christian will I be when love is mixed with the gifts of the Holy Spirit. So if you're taking notes this morning, there are four different categories we're going to look after with gifts used with great love. The first is gifts used with great love 
manifest great kindness. Gifts, gifts used with great love manifest great kindness. Again, in verse four, he says, what is love? He doesn't say love is love. Er, You can't do that. He says love is patient. Love is kind. He then goes on, and that'll be our second point of what it's not. But look at verse six. It says it does not rejoice at wrongdoing. He gives a contrast there, but rejoices with the truth. So there's two positive virtues that Paul holds out. He says, when love is mixed in with the gifts of the Holy Spirit, what kind of person will I become? I will become a patient person and a kind person. Then later he says, I won't rejoice at wrongdoing. So we'll look at the negative in a moment. He contrasts that, I will rejoice in and with the truth. And I believe truth here is not Truth in the sense of the Bible or the gospel, though certainly when we stand on the truth, Paul often uses it that way. It's, it's in contrast to wrongdoing. Do you see that? So he says, I won't rejoice at wrongdoing. I'll rejoice in the truth. I'll rejoice in right doing, right? In right living. So the first thing he says in the positive, he gives us these two characteristics, these two virtues of patience, kindness, celebrating when things are right, when people are living right, when things are moral and ethical, when things are beautiful. I rejoice when love is mixed in with the gifts of the Holy Spirit. I am becoming that kind of virtuous person, especially patient and kind which is why I said manifest great kindness. Now, the word, if you're using your King James version there for patience is often translated, I think in the King James it's suffereth longeth. Yeah, all that, that's, yeah. Long suffering is the new King James, right? Like, and so when we think about patience, we are somebody who suffers long and is patient. And these are all largely towards people, not simply circumstances. That's Paul's concern here. It's how do I relate to other people with the gifts God's given to me in love? I'll be patient with them, and I will be kind to them. Origen says that this kindness makes us sweet to all. I love that, sweet to all. And so we see first these virtues of who we are, how we relate to other people, and what we feel in our heart. Again, he says, what we rejoice in reveals what makes us happy, right? So it's not only what we do, but we're actually happy when people are living right according to God and his word. And so here's what I want you to hear under this first point before we go to the second When we think about the gifts of the Holy Spirit, we often think in terms of function, right? Like, do I have the gifts of administration? This is what I'm called to do. Do I have the gift of teaching? Well, I'm supposed to teach. Do I have the gift of giving? How much money am I, you know, you go down the list. If I have the gift of prophecy, did I hear right from God and communicate that to you? What are these gifts? Paul here is saying, yes, we know what the gifts do. Teachers have the gift of teaching. We got that. What kind of teacher are you becoming? Who are you becoming? And as we've talked to throughout this series, sometimes power can actually corrupt our souls rather than make us more beautiful. And so when the power of the Holy Spirit comes, we have to make sure that the manifestations of the Spirit and the power of the Holy Spirit are always tied to the fruit of the Holy Spirit. 
which is love. When they come together, it makes me into a more virtuous person. You know, and I, one of my concerns about the faith sometimes is that Christianity becomes a means to an end, right? And other people, like Jesus becomes a means, whether, you know, there's the health and wealth approach, like if I get Jesus, then all these other things, so there's that approach. Sometimes it's a highly politicized approach, which is Jesus is a means to further my political end. Jesus is a means to an end, right? He's not the end in itself. No, Jesus is the treasure. Jesus is the end. But here's the second thing. What should the faith do? Yes, we believe certain truths, but what kind of person should it turn us into? Scripture is preoccupied with saying we become more virtuous people. That when the love of God hits us, comes to us, we become more godly, more Christ-like. And that his love takes over our souls so that we exemplify his characteristics. We reflect who he is in the world. So not that I want to say it is a means to it, but if you say, well, what is the purpose? It's to become more like Jesus, right? That's the end, and that's the virtues that you're going to see. Because think about this. These virtues, God is patient, isn't he? God suffers long with us in our sin. He's kind, God is kind. Romans teaches that God is patient with us in our sins, right? And his kindness leads us to repentance. So these are the very virtues held up for us to say these are embodied in the very nature of God himself. The God who is patient towards people who he could easily just smite you in a second, right? The wrath of God could just wipe us all out and say game over. But he's patient not desiring that any should perish, but that all should come to repentance. And if God is patient towards sinners like that, maybe we could be patient with each other. Right? Maybe we could be patient with sinners too. If God is kind towards the just and the unjust, when somebody treats us wrongly, maybe we could still treat them with kindness. Because God makes the rain to pour and the sun to shine upon the good and the evil. God is preoccupied with making us into more loving people. And if we're not sure what it looks like, it's right there. It's patient. It's kind. It rejoices with the truth. Secondly, so that's the positive. So he doesn't use the word love. He, he uses patience, kindness, rejoicing at the truth. Now let's look at the negative. Gifts used with great love quench great arrogance. Quench great arrogance. So he had two virtues in the positive. Now he has eight vices. What it does not look like. In the negative, verse 4 again, love does not envy or boast. It is not arrogant or rude. It does not insist on its own way. It is not irritable or resentful. It does not rejoice at wrongdoing. All of these knots, what it does not look like. How do we summarize this? Well, certainly, arrogance is on the list, so I just use that as the header. It does not envy, it does not boast, it's not arrogance. We get this contrasting picture of what love isn't in the negative, saying it's not selfish. It's not preoccupied with itself. It's not insisting on its own way. It's not always thinking I'm better than. It's not inflexible, right? The language he uses there that it insists on its own way. It's not irritable. It's not mean-spirited. It's not easily snapped. Like, you got on the wrong side of me. Like, right? 
patience, kind, long-suffering, right? This is the flip side of the coin. It's telling that Paul only gives us two positives and eight negatives, right? Now, I was talking to Dennis earlier, and he grew up in the Roman Catholic tradition. He was talking, like, he, he knew the deadly sins, like the vices and stuff. And so he said, well, do you know the virtues? He's like, I don't know. So sometimes we do get preoccupied with the negative, and Paul even gives us more here. But I think there's this reason he gives us more of the negative here, and it's not because he wants us to be preoccupied with sin, like sin hunters. I, I think it's because this describes exactly how they are with one another. They are becoming irritable. They are becoming arrogant and boastful and proud. And you say, well, how do you know that? Because it's littered throughout the rest of the book. I mean, this is basically him pulling all of his kind of gentle rebukes into one beautiful, poetic, you know, correction. Which is why it's so amazing. We love this at weddings. But it's like he's saying, he's calling people out right now in here and saying, stop it, stop it, stop it. This is not what love looks like. You know, and just like I said, God is patient and kind. You could just as easily put the name Jesus into these verses and see Christ's likeness exemplified, right? That Jesus is patient and kind. Jesus isn't envious or boastful. Jesus is not arrogant or rude. Jesus does not insist on his own way. He's not irritable or resentful. Jesus does not rejoice at wrongdoing. Jesus exemplifies love. Jesus is the personification of great power used for the good of others, isn't he? He talked about the greatness of being meek in the Beatitudes. And meekness is not weakness. I think many of you have been a Christian for a while have heard that, right? Meekness is not weakness. It's power under control, right? Power that is held back for the good of others. And you say, well, he kind of does insist on his own way. He's going to be the judge of the earth, right? Yeah, on that final day, but he's still patient with you now. And I think of our Lord Jesus at the, as he's thinking about the cross and crying and sweating drops of blood and tears, saying, Father, if there be any other way, he says, not my will, but yours be done. And he goes through the excruciating pain of the cross and abides by the will of the Father, even though in his humanity, he recoils against it. So I would say, even in that, Jesus is the personification of God's love. He is love incarnate. Love has come to earth and he has his name. His name is Jesus Christ. And when we put off these vices and put on these virtues, we become more like Jesus Christ on this side of eternity. Yesterday, we had the celebration of life for Larry Brothers, one of our elders at the church who also served as a deacon before that, and historically back on the board here, he was up on the AVL team running that for many, many years. It's a big loss for us as a church, a gaping hole in our church, where many of us feel it very deeply. We're growing quickly, so some of you didn't get to know him through the COVID season, but the sanctuary was filled with individuals both from church, from his school, from, from his family, flying in from all over the world. And each person came up and kept sharing about how loving a person Larry Brothers was. That he just exemplified love, not just at church, exemplified it to his students, to his faculty, his principal, his boss came up here and shared 
from her heart the love she saw in Larry Brothers and then pulled me and my wife aside at the reception afterwards to say that she is a Christian too. And she just saw the faith of Larry Brothers shining so brightly with tears in her eyes, how much she felt the loss of Larry and the loss of his love at that school. And I just see a picture of Christ's likeness in Larry that I, I shared at the memorial service. I shared yesterday, I said, you could even read Larry's patient. Larry is kind, right? And everybody started to nod their heads. I challenge you to read your name through 1 Corinthians 13 and just say, does this describe me? Now listen, God's word is a mirror, and we'll talk about mirrors in a little bit, and it always reveals areas that we fall short, right? Like if you're like, yo, I got it all done, then you probably are proud or, you know. <laughs> so, so you should see a couple things out of place, right? God's word convicts us not to condemn us, but so that we can change, right? And be transformed. And so we hold this text up to our own lives, our own mirror, not to say, yeah, look how, look how beautiful I look. Look how loving I am. Yeah, wink, wink. I love me. <laughs> That's supposed to be a joke. I love me, right? No, we look at ourselves and we say, what is off here? I am easily irritable. I dig my heels in and I always insist on my own way. Now, granted, this is not capitulating on truth. He already talked about truth. This is like, there's so many things in life that are just preferences. It's not a right or wrong. Where you go out to eat, right? Even your favorite sports team. <laughs> that aren't right or wrong. Are you loving? Let's lay this text into our lives and evaluate how virtuous I'm becoming and how much I'm putting to death these vices in my life. Because Paul wants us to see what love looks like. You can't just say I'm loving because I'm loving. You actually have to look at these qualities and say, does that look like me? I use, before I move on to the third point, manifest and quench to describe these because those are spirit words in our Bibles, manifestations of the Spirit. It's like stirring up things of the Holy Spirit, God revealing himself. And quenching is this language of like squashing, right? And so we're not to quench the work of the Holy Spirit, the gifts of the Holy Spirit. We're not to despise prophecies, we're told. So there's this quenching side and these manifestations, this stirring up side. So I pulled that spirit language in to say, let's stir up the virtues and let's quench the vices. And when the Holy Spirit's operational, he should be doing both. Not only giving us great power, but great virtue and putting to death what is earthly within us. Amen? That's what the work of the Holy Spirit does. He empowers us, but he also sanctifies us, sets us apart, progressively makes us holy. Amen? Gifts used with great love quench great arrogance. Thirdly, gifts used with great love bear and believe great things. Bear and believe great things. Verse 7, love bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things, endures all things. So he's moved from the positive to the negative. Now he's giving us a list of four things. How comprehensible? All things, everything. Are some things excluded? No, right? All things. And these four are bears, believes, hopes, endures. By the way, which two of these are also cardinal virtues in the Christian faith? 
namely faith and hope. He uses the word believe, which is synonymous for faith, right? So at the end, he's going to circle back to those faith, hope, and love, right? These are like the, the holy trinity of virtue in the Christian life, right? You see it on the stained glass, and you see it on the woodwork, faith, hope, and love, faith, hope, and love. So he's, he's incorporated this into this fourfold, all things, all things, all things. And at the end, he's got a zinger for us because they are not equal and we'll get to that at the end. He puts love on the top of the list. But he says the nature of love is that it actually causes us to have great hope, to have great faith, and it also causes us to bear with people and circumstances and to endure things, going back to long-suffering, right? <laughs> Suffering long. A loving person can put up with a lot. Doesn't mean that you become a doormat per se, but you're not easily angered, right? You're not quickly triggered, right? Those kind of words is a modern contemporary translation, right? We bear all things and we believe all things. We bear and believe great things. And here I'm using the word great in both its positive and negative sense. We believe great things and we bear great things because those are all in the comprehensive nature of all on the spectrum, right? And so he's got this picture where there's a person who is so filled with the love of God, so full of the Holy Spirit, that despite circumstances and the people around them, they put up with all kinds of stuff, and they still believe in great things for that person and for the future, sometimes even despite the circumstances right now. You know, and this is challenging for us as Christians. It's challenging for us as human beings. I found this pattern in my own life, and I found this in the church. When we get hurt by somebody in the past or have hurtful situations, it affects not only the way we relate to those people or those institutions, it also, we project them onto future people and onto future circumstances, and that becomes the lens by which we interpret all of reality. It starts to kill our hope. It starts to kill our love, and so we start to project doom. We take those pain and those scars, and it taints the glasses by which we look through the world and by which we evaluate other people's motives towards us. And I believe, yeah, amen. I get some clap. Yes. Part of the sanctification that God wants to do in our lives, again, not just what we believe, but how we hold our beliefs. And when I came to Manoah, I'm on a mission to say, yes, we hold our doctrine deeply and strongly, but the way that we hold them and the way that we treat one another as we hold them, that matters to God just as much. It does. We got to treat each other right. We got to treat each other with grace. One of our core values in our grace acrostic is empowerment. It was picked because we like to disempower people often in the church. So I said, we empower one another to reach our fullest potential in Christ, both believing and expecting the best from one another. And again, this is just not some positive believism. Look at verse 7. This is what we are called to do in love. Let me put this in the context of love and say it this way. I've said this in the past under grace, but let's do it with love. In, in all things, love believes the best of one another, wants the best for one another, and expects the best from one another. Now, you might be saying, Pastor, you are so gullible. Because <laughs> there are people out there 
that just are looking for people like you, <laughs> that they can take advantage of you. You're not hoping for the best already. I see where you're going with that. But here's the thing. I would rather live my whole life thinking maybe like the parable of the prodigal son, for example. Being the father whose son squandered everything, who's waiting, expecting, and hoping that there's a turnaround down just around the corner, and when somebody comes back saying, I forgive you, I love you, and embrace you, then the older brother who's like, he doesn't deserve this, I knew it would go this way, right? What kind of persons, people, men and women are we becoming? I want you to know as pastor that I expect, believe, and want great things for you. And I never want to stop or cap. And if that means, if that means one day that God moves you from Manoa because we are the limiting force, then so be it. Not because I'm driving you out, meaning like, I want to see you go as far as it, you know, if you're going to the nations and we send you out from here. I had a friend from college come here just to heal briefly for a season. And then he says, I think we're called to go to California and help revitalize churches in California. I said, that sounds amazing. <laughs> My loss, their gain, and we just celebrated them and sent them on. Because people don't belong to me, they belong to Jesus. And we long to see the body of Christ with the capital C built up wherever that happens. Love, love requires this of us, brothers and sisters. It requires us to bear and believe the best. Now, people will disappoint you. Even as I say, and people at Manoah will let you down. Maybe one day I will. I don't know. I'll try my best to be purposeful and not do this. But here's the thing. I think when Paul says they bear and believe and hope for all things, Always, always in the end, Paul's hope and faith is not in the goodness of people. A lot of people will betray Paul, but it never causes him to lose hope. Why? Because his hope is always anchored in God. People may fail you, God never will. Do not let it make you into a cynical person or a cynical Christian. Continue to bear and believe the best. Because in that condition, one, you're being prepared for the best place ever. So no matter how bad it gets here, it's going to get only better, right? And so whether it's bad or getting better, it just prepares you for that eternal weight of glory as we groan on this side of eternity. But I want to live in a holy optimism that God can do far more abundantly beyond all I could think or ask. And that he who began a good work in you will be faithful to complete it because I trust in God even when your light's a mess. I'm waiting because God's not done with you yet and neither am I and neither are we. Amen? We are patient because God is patient. We bear and believe and hope and endure all things. That's what love does. That's the kind of culture God creates. Fourthly and finally, gifts used with great love mature to eternal greatness. Gifts used with great love mature to eternal greatness. The, the remainder of the chapter, verse 8, I'll reread. Love never ends. As for prophecies, one of the gifts, prophetic, they'll pass away. As for tongues, they'll cease. As for knowledge, the gift of knowledge, word of knowledge, it's going to pass away. 
For we know in part, we prophesy in part, but when the perfect comes, the partial will pass away. When I was a child, I spoke like a child. I thought like a child. I reasoned like a child. When I became a man, I gave up childish ways. For now, we see in a mirror dimly, but then face to face. Now I know in part, then I shall know fully, even as I have been fully known. So now faith, hope, and love abide. These three But the greatest of these is love. Gifts to greatness. There it is. And we're seeing the greatness all over this text. Paul says, as I said earlier, faith and hope are huge cardinal virtues. He says, love is in there. Greatest of these is love. The first question you should be asking is, how could you do that to love and put it over faith and hope, right? I mean, how could you even balance those out? Because faith, like, literally saves you, right? Like, you're saved by grace through faith. Like, it can't be less important, can it? Well, here's how I think I reconcile this hierarchy that emerges for love. First, faith saves me. Love is demonstrated towards you, right? And so when I become a more loving person, it's how I impact other people. Not to say my faith can't influence you in positive ways, but all of Paul's concern is always to prioritize the elements, the gifts, the virtues that benefit more people, other people, especially not yourself. So there's that component, but also baked right into this is an argument about continuity and discontinuity. Here's what I mean. One lasts forever, others come to an end. You say, Well, I understand, and we'll talk about gifts in a minute, that maybe some of the gifts won't follow us into heaven. But faith and hope? Well, remember, faith is the assurance of things not seen, right? We're going to go to Hebrews 11 in a few weeks. So the moment I see something, I don't need faith anymore. And he just talks about on that day when Jesus comes back, I will see him face to face. So you don't need faith faith to believe in Jesus when he's standing right in front of you, right? Like uh, Thomas who doubted Jesus. He said, I won't believe until I see. When, Tom, when Jesus shows up with the wounds and the sides and the scars, right? Like he doesn't need a whole lot more faith at that moment. And he says, well, blessed are those who don't see and believe. That's where you need faith. So when Jesus comes back, all the things you believed God for and all the things you hoped for happen. You don't need faith in heaven. It's reality now right? It is more real than this vapor of a life you're living in right now. I don't need faith in heaven. I have it all. But love never ends. From eternity to eternity, the God who made all of creation and spoke it lovingly into existence, Genesis 1, John 1, That love follows us forever and ever and ever. And by the way, he uses this language of maturity, childishness to becoming a man, right? This growing up, that the maturity that we will be, he's growing us into this Christ-likeness is preparing us for that age where there'll be no more vices, right? Where there'll be no more sin, where we'll be completely made new and that will be completely done away with. And he's not doing away with love. Love continues on forever. We live in the presence of God's love and the very love that we have in the church is it's just a dry run, right? It's just getting the, the pump started, the getting things worked up, so to speak, for this eternal existence of love with each other where all the things that divide humanity and divide the church are gone. Love 
never ends. Therefore, the greatness that God is preparing for us is not a greatness of eternal faith or eternal hope or eternal gifts and manifestations of the Spirit, but an eternal existence of love. Amen? He uses the imagery here of a mirror, and I love pictures, I love images in our Bible, and I started to do the dive this week on mirrors. Mirrors have been around for thousands of years, you know that? But not like the mirror in your bathroom. That's a novelty. Old mirrors were just polished metal. And probably that's the mirror that Paul's thinking of right now, because right around the first century, all of a sudden a new mirror popped onto the scene, and it had glass. So maybe Paul saw some of these mirrors, but his mirrors were pretty dim. Could you imagine living in a world where you really couldn't see yourself except looking at a pool of water or a piece of metal? I mean, how distorted that would be. And the glass that they started to use was blown glass. So it was either concave or convex, right? It was, it was kind of, it had some, some circular turn to it, right? When they laid the metal over against it. My kids, if you have kids, you know this, and really all of us love these. Have you ever seen the, uh, the curvy mirrors at the festivals, right? These, these mirrors that distort reality, the carnival mirrors. You walk through a hall, it's like, whoa, I look really fat. Oh, look how skinny I am, right? And your face blows out. And I think even that imagery is at play here where it's like it's dim, it's imperfect, it's not really based on reality. We know in part, we prophesy. Sometimes we get it right, sometimes we get it wrong. You know, the gifts are great, but on this side of eternity, especially as the gifts have been poured out broadly on the church, I mean, sometimes people have a gift of teaching and they just use it in a bad way, right? Like, Nine out of ten sermons, that's a good ratio, but you still got a dud in there every now and then, right? Like, just every now and then, the gifts misfire, partial, incomplete, and you don't need the gifts in eternity. You won't be sitting around listening to me preach, I guarantee you that, right? in heaven. You don't need the gifts in heaven, but this imperfectness and this incompleteness, and he has this imagery of kids I think the imagery he's trying to get us away from, he's saying, you all are staring at the carnival mirror. Preoccupied, whoa. (laughs) He's saying, grow up. Look to heaven. Look to that perfect state. See things for what they will really be, not only what they presently are. And remember that your perspective and your gaze in the present is imperfect at best and possibly distorted. The Snow Queen is a fairy tale. It's hundreds of years old, released by Hans Christian Andersen. Hans did Disney a big favor because they ripped off most of their themes from his old fairy tales. But there's a a famous uh, fairy tale. It's called The Snow Queen, where the demons create this mirror. And then the power of the mirror is as follows. When you look into the mirror, it exaggerates the bad. And you can't see the good. And they get some hellish delight from this, of course. You know, yes, this is an incredible tool. So they show it to people and all they can see is their own ugliness. They look at other people and they see all this distortion in other people. And they're like, I got an idea. Let's fly this mirror up to heaven. 
We'll show it to the angels and to God himself, you know, and destroy all of heaven. So they fly up with this mirror to heaven to try to show it to heaven. But unfortunately, fortunately really, but the power of God in heaven will not permit it to enter. And so the mirror shatters into billions and millions of pieces and scatters to all of the earth. And it binds itself into people's eyes and lodges itself into people's hearts. And the two main characters in the story are Gerda and Kay. And Kay is a young man and Gerda is his friend and Gerda is not affected by this, but Kay is hit in the heart and the eye. And all of a sudden he becomes a dour and pessimistic person. Somebody who is so loving and so kind all of a sudden becomes selfish and mean and speaks cruelly to her and thinks poorly of himself. And the Snow Queen comes and whips him up and takes him off to an ice castle. And so she's hunting throughout this whole fairy tale to rescue her friend who not only he's now disappeared, but who he was was a shell of the boy he once was. At the end of the fairy tale, she finds him in abandoned. Uh, the Snow Queen just disappears. and I guess she's a throwaway character. It's odd that it's named that. But she just disappears and never shows up again, right? Snow Queen's gone. He's here in this ice castle. Again, sound like a Disney movie, right? <laughs> and she finds him there, and he's just sullen and angry and mean to her. And she comes to him, and she embraces him. And she begins to weep upon his shoulder, and it trickles down to his chest. And her tear hits that shard of glass and expels it from his heart. And in that moment, he felt love again in his heart for the first time. And though he still saw the world because one was in his eye from a very dark place, he saw her from a very dark perspective and saw himself, but he felt love in his heart, and it caused himself to cry. And his own tears expelled the glass from his eye. And once again, this boy now, because of the power of love, was restored to a glorious, loving, joyful creature who loved his friends and saw the world from the proper perspective. Now, I know it's a fairy tale, <laughs> But Jesus taught in parables, and a lot of these have some truth in them, right? You hear about that, and you say, where have I bought into the lie? Because there's nothing more the devil would like to do for us than to see the world through the dark, dim, imperfect mirror and say, that is reality. That is all there is into this world. And don't you believe anything else? Love will never end. Fooey. Death will kill love and death will kill you. And everybody's out to get you. Don't hope. Don't believe. You're a fool if you do. God's word is here speaking, and if you can feel the power of the Holy Spirit, the virtue of the Spirit, the first fruit is love. And when the love of God comes to you, it's not just a cognition, I believe that God is a loving creature. No, God's love is poured into our heart by the Holy Spirit, and it changes our perspective, and it changes our heart. It changes what we rejoice in. It changes everything. And as we go through this series and then going into our series on faith, may we, brothers and sisters and friend, if you're not a Christian, not only believe in the love of God, but receive the love of God. Because the love of God will change you. It will change your heart. It will change your gaze. And it will put to death those very earthly 
vicious things in your life and make you into the virtuous person you long to be. Love never ends. Amen. Let's pray. God, we thank you for your love. God, we pray that you would help us to grow up and put away childish ways and childish things. To become men and women who are mature and being matured for eternity. Lord, that the love that we're experiencing and the love that we're giving would be preparing us for that eternal abode of love, that eternal kingdom of love, and that eternal family of love. May we practice being the type of Christians who believe and hope and endure all things in light of that eternal state in the present. And Lord, may we use the gifts that you have given us and stir them up in one another in love that we might strengthen each other in love. God, forgive us. As we prayed earlier, as John led us through a time of confession, we now confess our unloving hearts. We confess our selfishness to you. God, forgive us when we insist on our own way. Forgive us for our arrogance. God, we are a work in progress. But God, we thank you that you are patient and kind toward us despite our sin and gracious towards us in our fallen state. May we extend the very same grace that we so gratefully receive from you to one another. And might we extend the very same love that we so gratefully acknowledge has come from heaven. May we share that freely with all Christians and unbelievers as we seek to win them to Christ. And Father God, we pray as we turn our hearts to worship and prepare for these baptisms this afternoon, that you would be glorified that the mirrors of our hearts and our lives would reflect your glory back to you in a little bit more of a perfect way, still imperfect, but in a way that would shine your light to the world and shine your light back to heaven as mirrors and reflections of your great love. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.